Welcome to Midi the Podcast, a modern day podcast designed to answer all of your weird and wonderful pregnancy and postpartum questions. I'm your host, Monique Maitland, qualified midwife and nurse, founder of the Midi Society, and someone who is about to become your personal in-pocket midwife and virtual best friend. The Midi Society is a community-based platform where we interview leading healthcare professionals, new mummers and everyday people who share with us their experiences and reveal what they wish they knew before becoming a parent. So buckle up for this crazy and exciting ride. I'll be talking all things tits, bits, spew and poo. Alright, let's get started. In today's episode, I speak with Hannah Bryans about her journey into becoming a mum. Hannah had always dreamt of becoming a mum ever since she started to learn more about conception and after a trip to Bali with her high school sweetheart, Hannah and her husband found out they were pregnant at 24. Working as a midwife herself, Hannah felt well prepared for labour and birth and after spontaneously going into labour, Hannah was progressing well, but her contractions began to slow when her birthing environment was changed and the suggestion was to break her waters to encourage labour to progress. This was the beginning of a cascade of interventions which ended up with an epidural, forcep delivery and an episiotomy as well as a postpartum hemorrhage. Hannah explains her experience and the impact that it had on her including her postpartum journey. Hannah shares with us her second healing birth story where she birthed her beautiful baby surrounded by love and support in the bath. Please welcome Hannah. Hello everyone and welcome back to Midi the Podcast. Today I'm joined by the lovely Hannah Bryan. So Han, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes, um, thank you for having me first of all. Um, I am a mother of two. Um, I have a boy who is three and a little girl who is almost one. She turns one next week. Um, I am a midwife and the owner of Hatchling Store. Um, yeah, and I thought I would jump on and chat about my births. Yeah, why not? Come along. We'll have you on. I love having midwives on because, you know, I just love chatting with other midwives and <laughs> picking their brains and seeing how their journeys went. Um, but where should we start? Do you want to talk about falling pregnant for the first time maybe? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, um, I <laughs> fell pregnant in... <laughs> when yeah, time to reflect yeah. um fell pregnant in 2018 um at the time I was 24 um I had always wanted to have a family you know younger it was something that I saw happening you know before a career or before anything else really and not to say that I didn't want to do those things it was just mm. always at the forefront of my mind um yeah. to have babies um I wanted to be pregnant and have babies from like pretty early on, like when you start learning about how things work. Um, I was always fascinated by it. Like I thought it was so cool how you could grow a person and that person was yours and you got to, you know, care for them and look after them forever. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's also why I chose to be a midwife, just because I thought it was love babies. such a privileged position to be in and it yeah. definitely is. Um so my partner knew all of this. Um, however, 
he wasn't exactly on the same page about having them young. And when I say young, I mean, you know, before 30, I suppose, um, you know, to sort of get things started. Um, And we went to high school together. So we sort of had this on-off relationship for years. Um, We lived in a country town and went to school there together. And we both eventually moved down to Melbourne. I moved for uni and he moved to, you know, find a job and blah, blah, blah. And I suppose once we, you know, officially got together, you know, those conversations started coming up again. And we still, you know, I was just starting my job and finishing uni and he was the same. And um, I guess after a few years of actually living together, we started bringing up that conversation again and not to say, you know, let's start trying or whatever, but just we both sort of agreed that actually, yes, we might like to have kids before we get to that sort of 30, you know, age. Um, And then fast forward to a little holiday we took (laughs) in 2018, um, a few too many cocktails and we thought, why not? Let's just see what happens, Um, you know. And it happened straight away. (laughs) So, yeah, that is the story of our first pregnancy. (laughs) And did you name him after the place where you conceived him? (laughs) Any country? Name is not Bali, no. (laughs) Uh, Classic after a few cocktails. Yeah. Um, But I feel like lots of people usually say, you know, they want to have their first baby before 30. Like Mm -hmm. that's. I don't know about you, but often like that's a conversation with some of my friends mm-hmm. we will have. And, you know, today's day and age, most women that come into the hospital uh, really are after that 30 years old mm-hmm. majority. For me yeah. personally looking after them, they're usually from like 32 to 36 or so. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then I guess once you fell pregnant, what was your thoughts or what what was your partner thinking at that time I'm sure he wasn't expecting it to happen as quickly as it did definitely not um look we were both definitely surprised and it was a mixture of surprise and excitement I think for both of us but it took a few you know a couple of weeks to sort of settle in and be like okay this is what we're doing this is the direction you know we're going in now um and sort of as soon as we felt comfortable with that, then, you know, it was full steam ahead. We were so ready to do this and, you know, we sort of, you know, you always start thinking of what's next. You know, we were living in like a little apartment-y thing. So we're like, okay, mm-hmm. we, you know, we need to find somewhere to live that will suit a baby and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, we were excited. We were happy. We were also incredibly lucky that it happened straight away as much as we didn't yeah. think it would, like, it was crazy. Mm. And I'm not sure if we mentioned yet, but you were around 23 or 24 when you fell pregnant. I think I had just turned 24. Yes. 24. Yes, because and I had I had my son yeah. while I was 24 and then I think I turned 25 a couple of weeks later. Mm. Yeah. And how did your friends and family feel or do you remember some of the comments that were made when you were telling people that you were pregnant? Because once again, we look at the age and go, oh, geez, that's a bit younger than our usual mums around the block, isn't it? Yeah. But it's really not. It's yeah. Really not at all. Yeah. I mean, I think my, you know, my mum, she was 
a similar age when she had her children. So it wasn't, I know, and, you know, that was a while ago, so it was probably more normal back then. But my immediate family and my partners were both super excited for us. They were happy. Um, I think they knew that we'd had quite a solid friendship and relationship for a long time um, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, they were super happy for us. Um, Our friends, the ones that knew, you know, my closest friends, of course, happy because they knew that it was something that I wanted. I think perhaps James's friends were a bit shocked um, because I don't think he would have shared, you know, those those conversations that we were having with them. Um, But everyone was happy for us, but, you know, all of our friends at that time before COVID were like doing big trips to Europe and travelling and were leading a completely different Mm -hmm. life. So I think there was an element of surprise, you know, for those friends that weren't as close to us as, you know, others that were happy. Yeah. And I mean, you were in totally different, although you were the same age, you're in totally different points of your life. You know, they were probably going to party and you were probably, you know, you were ready to have that baby and settle down. And that wasn't in the forefront of your mind, but I'm sure that at times you were like, oh, you might've compared yourself to them. You might oh, definitely. Things. Like, yeah. And still do to this day, though, <clears throat> you know, just the different tra- trajectories that when you, you know, couples that we have been friends with since the beginning and now, you know, you're in such a different place. And, you, you know, mm-hmm. my partner and I talk about it all the time and it's like you can't have it all, you know. No. Yes, we, we've got kids and blah, blah, blah now, but we can't have though, you know, we can't have the life we have now and have done things that our friends have done so you know I think at the end of the day whatever you know is meant to be for you is meant to be for you and that's yeah the best path forward for you yeah and I like remember being in a situation where I was like you know questioning where I was in my point of life and you know looking at my friends who were in long-term relationships and you know I was there single and I was like where where the heck am I going? Like, what am I doing? Because I was always maternal. And I ended up in this point being like, stop thinking like that because everyone's paths, are, you know, they're going to stem differently, but you're all going to end up in the same point at one point, you know? Like, it's always yeah. going to come back. Everyone's going to do things at different times, but you should never compare yourself to others. You just stay in your own journey and you'll end up at the same destination at the end. Yeah, 100%. Um, And then I guess when you were coming towards labour and birth, how did you approach that? Did you do lots of education or, I mean, you're a midwife, so you probably would have had a lot of the education behind you, but did you get your husband to (laughs) join in in the education? Um, Honestly, not really. Like I didn't do any birth education for myself. But yeah, I had fair a, enough. You're already in <laughs> I had a pretty good idea of, um, you know, what I wanted and how I wanted things to go. Um, however, I think I still had a little bit, probably too much trust in the hospital system being a midwife, and I probably the way that my birth ended up going should have sort of done more 
you know, work with my actual preferences and what I wanted. And if this didn't happen, this Mm. would happen. You know, I just, I sort of, being a midwife, just fully went in being like, I'll be fine. I know my midwife, um, you know, we'll deal with things as they come. I was probably, yeah, a bit too, I hate to say the word trusting because you want to trust your healthcare providers, but I definitely put too much emphasis on this is what I do. Like I'm a midwife. I'll be fine. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Once labor happens, you don't, you don't get to have those, you know, your brain isn't thinking midwife thinking. You're just like, yeah, whatever. That's what needs to happen. That one needs to happen, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You've got to try and switch that midwifery brain off though, because otherwise you'd just be thinking about every single thing. Yeah. Yeah. And for your antenatal care, Mm-hmm. Can you share with us what pathway you went down? Yeah, so I was you went with. Yeah, I was pretty lucky. Um, I I went um, to my you know local public hospital, and initially I was just booked in with you know regular midwife care, and I think I was maybe close to twenty weeks or so, and I got a phone call from a midwife saying she was from the um their MGP practice and a spot's opened up would you like to have it and I was like oh my god because <laughs> I had initially put that as my number one preference but you know spots are always so limited in that model of care so luckily I just happened to get a last minute spot um which was yeah. fantastic and for people listening at home when you hear like MGP we're talking about midwives group practice and basically it's more of a continuity sort of model of care so you get teamed up with a midwife and they usually follow you throughout all your appointments and hopefully your labor and birth and postnatally Mm -hmm. dependent on if they're on call or over their hours and things like that but it is a beautiful program to really have great continuity of care with your healthcare provider Mm -hmm. but also for women who are striving and really passionate about you know minimal intervention trying to achieve a normal vaginal birth really mm-hmm. would you agree with that <laughs> definitely um <clears throat> I also I think as with anything like it really it's sort of luck of the draw who you get paired up with and whether mm-hmm. you know you click and unfortunately in a situation such as you know your public hospital you sort of have to roll with who you get um but trying for a vaginal birth in the MGP or in a group practice setting is definitely, um, it's definitely sets you up with everything that you need. I suppose it gives you the best chance. And I, I said to my partner, especially when we were having our second baby, like I can't imagine not doing it that way. And mm-hmm. cause initially, um, uh, long story, but they had some sort of computer malfunction when I booked in for my second pregnancy. And again, I got put into um, just the, you know, normal midwife. Standard, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to do it this time. Um, like it's such, it's such a gift. It's, you know, it's how it all should be like, mm. you know, but unfortunately it's not. And you have to be so lucky to get a spot It and it's nothing that, you know, you can do right or wrong. It is just if there's a spot at the time and your your name happens to be next on the list, I guess. 
Yeah, and there is a very low risk criteria to actually fit into that program. Yeah, of like course. We've got to make sure that your medical history is um, low risk, that your pregnancy is tracking low risk, and things can change throughout the pregnancy as well, and then which make you higher risk and you'll move out of that practice. Um, mm. But it is run by a smaller group of midwives. There's usually like three or four, depending on the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine they can't have hundreds of women <laughs> that they're looking after. So yeah. it really is the luck of the draw. And for me, like booking women in for their appointments, if they're 15, 16 weeks, they're more likely to get the spot than the women that come in at 17, 18 weeks because the spots are already filled by the time mm-hmm. they come for their appointments, which is just sad that they miss out. But it's unfortunately the way that it goes yeah yeah and then moving into your labor and birth you sort of touched on it a little bit can you share with us how your experience went yeah um it it definitely has a lot to do with the midwife brain and blah 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 but I um I went into spontaneous labor at home um I don't know, I can't even remember what time. It was sometime during the night I woke up and, you know, had the crampy feelings and just, you know, stayed at home as long as I could. Um, I had a TENS machine at the time and I was coping pretty well. Um, I just had this niggling feeling in the back of my mind that where we lived, because we moved during my pregnancy to about, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes away from our hospital. Um, And because I'd started labouring, you know, at night at some point, it was getting towards like the rush hour traffic time of the morning, you know, <laughs> yeah. that like between 7 to 8, 39 no, o'clock. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, should we just go now because I don't want to get stuck in like traffic in the car and feel horrible. I'd rather just be in my room so that I can get there, get the whole introduction over and then sort of get back in my zone. So I definitely went in earlier than I probably should have because I was stressing about being stuck in the car. Um, and once I got there, you know, things kept happening as they should. Um, and I was thinking like, I'm a, it's my first baby, you know, this is going to be a while. So I said to my partner, I was like, oh, why don't you go and get some, get some breakfast, get something to eat, you know, like (laughs) as a midwife partners, you know, I was like, go and get something like I'm fine here, blah, blah, blah. And I saw in, on reflection, I noticed that after you know my support person left and I was in the room by myself with my midwife I think I can't remember if she was coming in or out but my contractions basically disappeared um they slowed right down and I remember saying to her like oh you know my contractions have like really slowed down um and she was like you know we'll just change positions blah 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 and they just never really came back um and I think it was because I, I'd like burst that oxytocin bubble by sending my partner out because prior to that, you know, we'd been, you know, very close and leaning on him and, you know, it was my safe space. But after that, it was like the lights mm-hmm. had been turned on and I was, you know, in this room by myself. Um, a complete, yeah, change of yeah. environment. Which yeah. Knows it's how important environment is. Yeah. Facilitating labour. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we see it quite often, like people coming in from home who have had really good, strong, regular contractions and they come into the hospital and there's one in 10 or two in, you know, two in 10 and they've slowed yeah. right down because of the change of environment. Mm. Yeah. 
And it, it wasn't even, it wasn't necessarily that because I think I'd been in the room for a couple of hours since we got there and things were tracking along fine. It was literally once he left and that was, it's crazy to think how fragile, you know, those hormones are and that feeling of, you know, safety. Um, yeah. So once he left um, and we noticed that it was slowing down and blah, 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 my midwife said, oh, you know, we'll do a VE, we'll see where you're at. And if you're, I think if your contractions are still, you know, like one in 10 or something, like we'll do an ARM and, you know, get things cracking. And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds fine. You know, no big deal. Mm. Um, And so I was six centimeters at that point, six or seven, I can't remember. And she's like, you want me to do the ARM? And I was like, yeah, why not? Like, you know, why not? We're here. We'll just do it. Um, and it was from that point that things just like went entirely downhill. Um, I think. And ARM is a, oh, sorry. it's a term that <laughs> midwives use, but for people listening at home, it's an artificial rupture of membranes and you might hear people referring to it as like a crochet hook. Usually you hear people say that or like a knitting needle. Um, basically it's an internal examination and the little amni hook has a like a pointy part on the end. The actual amniotic sac has no nerve ending, so it's not painful to like break the waters, but it's uncomfortable. It's obviously an internal um, internal examination, and it is an intervention. Hmm. And that's the thing. That's you know the cascade of interventions yeah. just began from there. Um, I remember as soon as as soon as my waters were broken. I was like, all right, I'm going to get back up and keep being mobile. And it was like the pain went from like zero to a hundred. All of a sudden it was like, it was so hard to cope because I'd been very calm, breathing through, had my TENS machine on, you know, had my music going. And all of a sudden it was like this head had just slammed down onto my cervix and it was like, I wanted to escape my body just because of how drastic, you know, the change in, in, um, in sensation was, <clears throat> and my partner. Do you feel like you lost a little bit of control at that point? Well, hundred percent. Like it was, mm. it was gone. I was like a different person. Um, my partner got back into the room, you know, a couple of contractions after, and he was like, "Whoa, what's going on here?" And like, you know, he said that it was like I was Completely losing different. my mind. Yeah. Um. So. I think maybe I tried the gas at that point, but, you know, I was just like hyperventilating. I couldn't get it in for long enough to make a difference. So I think I ended up getting in the shower at that point, which really helped me. Like it calmed me right down. Um, but when she, when I did have the ARM, there was like an instant feeling of pressure mm. when that had happened, <clears throat> which I tried to, you know, ignore for quite a while. But once I was in the shower and I was standing, that pressure just wouldn't go away and it was making me start pushing involuntarily. Um, mm. And, you know, you try not to, blah, 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 because I knew that I wouldn't have been fully at that point. And then there's also that mind game in my head as well, being like, don't push, don't push. You know, I know that it's just a sensation and he's probably come down in an awful position because he wasn't ready, you know, to come down. Mm. Um and so my partner was sitting there with a shower head, you know, on my back or whatever. And I think at that point, I can't remember if, I don't even think I'd had a drink of water at that stage. Like I was just all over the place. And um, mm. she came and did a set of obs on me. And of course, you know, I had a high temperature. 
and my pulse was high and then she you know used the Doppler and my baby's heart rate was up as well um and I was like you know that's fine I'll just turn the water temperature down like the water was pretty hot it was in you know the little hospital bathroom where like the steam is like a sauna yeah and she was like oh you know we better probably go and put a trace on just to be sure um and then by the time I got out of the shower I didn't have that pain relief and I just couldn't stop pushing um I couldn't like I was out of control basically um and so and I guess they can from like a midwifery point of view or medical point of view um when Hannah talks about involuntary pushing basically she she was pushing down with the contractions involuntary so she wasn't like taking a big breath in and then going for it it was her body's natural response to that feeling of mm-hmm. the pressure but with that comes risks of pushing down onto the cervix and the cervix becoming swollen and then not being able to dilate even more, which is, I guess, the main concern about involuntary pushing on a cervix that's not yet fully dilated. Mm-hmm. And which is exactly what happened. Um, I think I, I can't remember how much longer we like we spent, but she was like, all right, let's just see if, you know, if you are fully, if this pushing is because, you know, you're going to have a baby. And I think, I was still six centimetres now with the swollen cervix, whereas when I'd gotten there, I was fully effaced, you know, it was all good. So Mm -hmm. I remember I said to her, I was like, okay, well, I should just have an epidural now. And she was like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Um, And so we did that and, you know, it was fine. All the pain was gone. Um, Mm -hmm. And another intervention. Yeah. And the CTG went back to normal. My temperature came down. I was now lying in a bed feeling very comfortable, (laughs) Um, which was great. Um, I think they did their regular checks every couple of hours as they do. Um, And I didn't need any extra help. Like I didn't need any syntocin for my contractions just kept going um, on their own with the epidural. Um, And it got to the point where I was fully dilated and um, the CTG was still normal. And Which is I, the monitor on like monitoring the baby's heartbeat and um, the contraction. Yeah. And, you know, I started pushing, which I found so, so difficult. Um, and as a midwife, you know, we always, it's part of our job to help women push with an epidural and mm. be on the other side of that. It was almost impossible for me. I could not connect my brain to where I needed to push, even though I'd stopped the, I hadn't pressed my button. Um, I did have feeling like I was able to move. I got onto all fours. I actually got off the bed. Like I was moving around, but I just had no connection between my brain and where to focus that energy to push. Mm. Like there, it was like, there was nothing there responding to me. Um, yeah. And of course, and it's thinking, funny. Sorry. No, you I go. I was going to say it funny that you say that because I was in our tea room at work the other week and you know a doctor came in and she had just given birth and she had an epidural and she was like to be on the other side of being coached to push it is so hard and she was like you know as a health professional we're like come on you know you're not doing that's not the adequate pushing you need to do like stronger and better and she's like no that's now gone out of my practice because women say they you know they feel like they can't do it it's actually so hard and so challenging to push 
it was so hard. And I remember when I was pushing the way that I felt it should, the midwife was like, no, you know, you're pushing, you know, there's no movement down here. You need to sort of push this way. And when I pushed the way that they suggested, I was like, oh, that feels, that doesn't feel right. You know, I thought it just, there was no connection between what I thought I needed to do because I just didn't have enough feeling down there. Um, so hard. It was, and I'm sure so your brain was like, "Why can I not get this? Like, this is yeah. what I do. Like, this is yeah, what I help them with how? How come I can't do it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think yeah, I can't remember how long I pushed for, but you know, of course, with pushing and nothing really going on, the trace started getting pretty crappy. Um, and then, of course, the doctors were, you know, called in, and um, by that point, I was exhausted like physically and mentally I was like I could have just closed my eyes and gone to sleep (laughs) on the bed and I remember the doctor came in and she she was like oh it was my baby was born at nine something and she said oh I can't leave I can't leave a trace like this to go and do handover let's get this baby out and at that point I was so tired. I was like, oh, yep, that's fine. And for a midwife, you know, you see forceps and vacuums every day. It's normal for you, you know. But then to be on the receiving end of it, I was completely shocked. It was so, so intense. Mm. Um, and I was so terrified of having an episiotomy, so terrified because you've you know you see it on the other side and for me sort of knowing what that process is and then knowing that that's happening to me right now while I'm fully it's in my brain yeah. I was like you know yeah give me you know I was like you know you need to give me she gave me a pudendal just for yeah, me oh, because I was like I don't want to feel a single thing like I've got an epidural but I want more I'm I do not want to feel it you need to do that before it happens which she did and um and I was like, don't tell me when you're going to do it. And she told me and then I just like freaked right out. Um, and forceps came in and which also was a very different feeling to what I would have thought it would be from, you know, the other side. It was quite intense, um, the feeling of it. <clears throat> but um, they put him on my chest and, you know, you get that rush. It was amazing. He was finally here and, you know, um, and I think because of, you know, the last couple of hours of labour and birth, he, uh, he, I think he had low sats or something. I can't even quite remember. Um, or he was tacky and they ended up taking him to the nursery just for observation. So I think he was only on my chest for like five or ten minutes maybe. Um, and then I started having quite a significant bleed, um, which was due to the episiotomy. So then, you know, there was a ton of people in there managing the bleed and suturing me, which again was so intense to be on the other side of when, you know, your baby's just been taken here and you're, I could feel the blood coming out and I'm, you know, there's people around me, you know, doing your blood pressure and, you know, doing fundal rubs. And I was just laying there like, oh my God, I can't believe that this is something that I participate in quite often and now it's me and it's like far out. This is so, so intense and it gives you a completely different view on on what, you know, what your job is and what 
other people are feeling that you're caring for. It's It was a big, big eye-opener, definitely. Yeah, and you think of the women who are so vulnerable every day in mm. our birth suites who haven't done much education, who have absolutely no idea about, you know, an instrumental birth and postpartum hemorrhages and then to be in that position and you have all that knowledge behind you and you were still, I guess, taken back by it. Like it just yeah. really does put things into perspective. Yeah, definitely. It, um, yeah, it definitely changed me as, as a midwife and it's probably quite, um, it's, it probably plays a huge part in the fact that I haven't been back to work yet to mm. the birth suite anyway. Um, I've been away for almost four years now. Well, I will three years now, but I've got another little while off um, just because it was, you know, it was pretty traumatic for me. And I think I hesitated in saying that because I'm like, I'm a midwife, you know, this mm. is this is normal. This happens all the time. Like it wasn't traumatic for you you know, blah, blah, blah. But on reflection, especially after having my second baby in such a beautiful way, I was like, wow, that experience was definitely traumatic. And it was traumatic for my partner as well. Um, Mm. And yeah, it just, it's, it really changed my view on, you know, the hospital birth setting. And that all happened to me with MGP. So it's, it's, it really sort of played with my head a lot where I was like, is this my fault? Is this their fault? Is this, you know, how could this have been different for me? But, you know, it, it is what it is. And I'm so glad that my second birth was a completely different experience. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, women always go to blame themselves after anything, Mm. no matter what, you always go back to yourself and why it must have happened because I did this you tried everything and we know like working with women who involuntary push how hard it is to not push down on your cervix when your body is literally telling you to and to try and hold off on that like every single thing that you did you made the right decision for you like getting Mm. that epidural although it was hard in the pushing stage like you needed to do that to help yourself at that point But, yeah, it's so tough being a midwife and having some sort of trauma surrounding anything like miscarriage, um, birth, postpartum because Mm -hmm. we see it every day and it's just in your face every day. It's the worst possible job when anything is going wrong in your life to be around sometimes because there's so many highs and so many lows. I mean, it's great sometimes but it is quite quite hard. And then I guess – moving forward in your postpartum journey Mm -hmm. you did have some difficulties with your episiotomy breakdown can you share a little bit about that and for people listening at home I have mentioned it before on the podcast but an episiotomy basically when they are you know trialing an instrumental birth because we know that the risk of tearing and like third or fourth degree tears is higher when introducing another instrument into the you know vagina um they do most likely cut an episiotomy just to create more space and yeah prevent tearing into those anal sphincter muscles yeah um i remember the 
so my son was born at nine, um, I think 940 it was. And by the time I got back to the ward, I remember like it was just absolutely throbbing. I couldn't fall asleep. It was so painful. <clears throat> and I'm thinking to myself again, you know, oh, we usually just give like Panadol and Voltaren for an episiotomy. And I was having so much pain. I couldn't sit still. Like I couldn't go to sleep. It was just like absolutely throbbing. It hurt so much. And I remember I, you know, did my little buzzer and the midwife came in and I was like, I really need something else. And she's like, oh, well, we don't usually give anything stronger for that. And I was like, I cannot sleep. Like it hurts so much. It was, you know, when you're like something is infected, it was just like absolutely throbbing and I couldn't focus on anything else. Anyway, she, eventually I got some stronger pain relief. Um, and then I, you know, I went home the next day. And it was just getting worse and worse. Like I, on day two or something, I was at the point where I could hardly walk. It was so, so sore. And mm. I felt like I was just being, you know, Dramatic. weak or whatever. I was like, you know, ha- women have episiotomies every day. Like get over it. You know, it'll, it, it's fine. Um, and then my midwife visited and she was like, look, I think there is a bit of an infection in there. So I got some antibiotics, which I started, um, and then, I went to visit my parents for a week or for less than a week or something and it just wasn't getting better. It was just the the pain was still there. I was having, you know, heavy pain relief every day just so that I could get out of bed and, you know, go to the bathroom or feed my baby. Um, It was really bad pain and I think the night that I got back to our house, I was like, there is something wrong. Like it bloody hurts so much. So I got like my phone camera and had a look and I was like, (gasps) that's just not good like that isn't something that's getting better that is looking like pretty horrific and I called her because she was my MGP midwife so I could just ring her and I was like Mm. something's not right it's not getting better it's really painful it looks horrendous um basically there was no stitches left in there at all anymore it was just completely broken down And she was like, oh, you know, sometimes the stitches fall out, but, you know, it heals from sort of the inside out, so it should be okay. And I was like, no, it's not right. Like I'm, I don't even know why I rang you. I'm just going to go to the hospital. I'm just going to go to ED because, like, I can't go to sleep with knowing that this is happening right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we went back to the hospital and blah, blah, blah. And, um, yeah, one of the doctor came in and was like, this is a pretty significant infection, like, um, and then they sort of quizzed me on like my hygiene. And my hygiene and how what have I been doing and have I been eating well to promote healing and blah blah blah. And I was like, oh my god, you know, yes, I've been doing all of these things. And I said, I honestly feel like there was something wrong from the beginning because it hurt, it never, it never relaxed. It was always so painful. Um, and so because it was such a pretty, you know, horrible infection, I was on an- IV antis for but probably about a week um and I think a day or so after I got there they took me up to theater to have like a full wound clean out and depending on the severity of it she was like you know we might re-suture we might have to fix some things up and they ended up re-suturing and um yeah it was probably more difficult and more painful than the actual birth itself because not only was it's sore, but I was also recovering from having a baby. Um, 
you know, my partner couldn't stay with me. So I was like trying to get up and down during the night to feed the baby and they were really busy. So like, I didn't want to bring the bell to be like, can you pass me my baby? You know? Um, so that was, that was a pretty intense experience after the already intense one that was the birth, you know, it was, yeah, pretty horrible. Yeah. And I know we try and educate women on how to keep their wounds clean and dry and the best way to care for them. But realistically, the area in which these wounds are is the perfect breeding ground for bacteria and for infection. So, you know, they quizzed you on that, but it is no fault of your own, really. Yeah. And, you know, the amount of people that were there when I was having the PPH, you know, there's just so many, so much room for something to be, you know, passed on or, you know, who knows what it was. You know, it could have been. Yeah, it could have been anything. And in an emergency situation, it's not a sterile field, you know, like anyway. (laughs) Yeah, especially when it's bleeding to try and close it up. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess guess once all of that healed finally and you got to settle in at home, I know that you did go through a period where you felt quite socially isolated. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about that? Like how did you go? knowing you know it comes back to your friends being at a different point in their life compared to you how did you best navigate that time um I think it was it was pretty hard for um my partner and I we were not only the first of our friendship groups to have a baby but we were also the first of both of our immediate families so he was a first grandchild um we didn't really have anyone that had a baby around us so after the whole you know after the birth and after my postnatal you know after all of that we were just like so out of our depth I guess you know we'd had this pretty traumatic experience with the birth and you know um with my wound and then you know we had this baby that we also had to look after and you know apart from our parents who did it 20 something years ago we didn't have anyone to be like this is a good way of doing this. So we were just like, you know, keeping our heads above water, just doing whatever we thought was best. And it was a huge adjustment for both of us. Um, We, our relationship was in, you know, challenged to its limits, Um, the sleep deprivation and going from, you know, being a young couple who could be like, yeah, we'll come to the pub tonight or, you know, we'll come over and do this to being, you know, at home um, looking after a baby and waking up all night and whatever. Um, and we just felt like, people, you know, our friends were like, just bring the baby, just blah, blah, blah. And we were like, no one gets it. No one understands it, you know. Yeah. We're the only ones who are, you know, dealing with this, you know, even though we're not. But, you know, we just felt like, we were the only ones going through this huge life change, yeah. you know. Um, and I think we it probably took us a good, I don't know, maybe six months or more, I, I'm not sure, to sort of, you know, finally get our heads above water. Um, and Without I, the legs going. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, we definitely spent a huge portion of that six months, you know, mourning the old life that we had and questioning what are we doing what have we done like this you know Mm. it was such a huge 
change for us, but we definitely, I think, grew as a couple together. You know, we really learned to lean on each other because apart from, yeah, you know, our parents, there wasn't really anyone else to turn to for, you know, advice. It was really just him and I sort of, you know, helping each other. Um, And I think we grew up as people as well. You know, our values sort of shifted and our priorities shifted and to the point where now we sort of function as like one, you know, we support each other. We, um, yeah, we've come a long way, I guess I would say. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I, I honestly would say that we did most of that together because, yeah, we didn't really have that, you know, village of people that, sort of Mm. were in the same season of life as us it was yeah it and it was tough like it was very isolating but I think yeah it definitely taught us some huge lessons it sounds like you have a beautiful relationship with the other half um (laughs) but you know you're definitely not alone with having those feelings of like resenting what's happened and missing your own your old life and because things have changed so much so quickly (laughs) they do and when you're comparing yourself to others it's yeah it's quite quite hard a vicious cycle really um and then I guess as you know you settled into things and life somewhat started to become more normal again can you share with us your pregnancy and labor and birth with your second baby because I'm so interested to hear about this and (laughs) as you've mentioned it was already such a healing experience and such a contrast to the last time so can you share a little bit about that um so I think we fell pregnant when my son was um maybe about 15 months old we had talked about trying or we talked about having a second baby um and then in between talking and trying we also decided we're going to move we're going to leave Melbourne we're going to move um to the Geelong area, which is where my family is. And we'll just wait until, you know, we've settled in to then try for a second. Um, mm-hmm. I'd done some pregnancy tests when I thought I needed to, and they were negative. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I really feel like I'm pregnant. I feel like I should be pregnant, but they're negative. So let's put pause on it. We'll move, we'll settle in, and then we'll start trying again. Um, and then for some weird reason, maybe a week later, I was like, I'll just do one more because I just feel like I am. And I was. So <laughs> again, another baby that arrived, you know, with us very quickly, um, which was definitely an amazing experience this time, because instead of being like, oh my God, I'm pregnant. I was like, oh my God. You know, I was, yeah. we were both, we could both share in that excitement this time without being like, what the hell are we going to do? this time it was you know instant excitement instant you know looking forward to meeting this baby because we already know how amazing it is to meet to meet another you know to have met our first baby um and yeah luckily I got into the MGP group again but it was sort of a backdoor way and I was um paired with a really lovely midwife who um probably understood my wishes and needs maybe a little bit we sort of just clicked a bit better I guess you would say um and from the beginning you know she obviously knew what my first birth was like and I was like I really 
don't want a single intervention this time. Like I just want to be left alone basically. Mm. Um, and she was really supportive of that. Um, and, yeah, I had my – I actually wrote a birth plan. Well, not a birth plan. I, you know, sort of did this little page just in case she wasn't going to be there um, so that my needs were definitely – aware like everyone was aware and she shared that with um their team and Mm -hmm. I I think a week the appointment or so I had before I went into labor I actually met her partner and she was like yep we're all on board you know we know what you want blah 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 um and again I went into labor at home my biggest concern was it was during lockdown and my mum lives lived quite far away because I was still in Melbourne. She was, you know, past Geelong and I was like, I just want my mum to be there to look after my son. I just want her to be there and then for me to go, like I don't want to be stressing about blah, blah, blah. You know, my partner's mum definitely would have come, but I just wanted my mum there because it had been such a long few years of lockdown. You know, we hadn't seen each other in who knows how long and I was like, I just want my mum to be there so I have to go into labour at a time that I can then text her and be like, you need to come. Like that was the biggest concern in my mind at the time was like getting my mum here in time Um, and I think it was like 5am. I woke up to some cramping and I was like, mum, just come over because even if I don't go into labour today, I'm 39 weeks, like I had a bloody show two days ago, like it's probably going to happen. But if it doesn't, it'll happen in the next few days. So just come and, you know, you can stay if if I don't go into labour, blah, blah, blah. And so she's like, oh, sure. So it was like a few hours later and I called my sister and I was like, where's mum? She's like, oh, mum's like straightening her hair or something. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like my second baby, mum. Like things could go quicker this time. She's like, oh, okay, I'll come. And so she got (laughs) there. Mm-hmm. um she got she got there and then um she sort of stayed downstairs with my husband and our son um and I was just really in my zone upstairs by myself like I didn't really need the support that I did the first time I was just you know mm-hmm. I took a shower and I had like my birth playlist going and <clears throat> my essential oils and my tens machine and I was just sort of chilling out in my room and I was texting a group of you know my midwife friends and they were like how's it how many contractions blah blah and I'm like I'm having like four and ten they're pretty intense but I'm fine and they're like oh maybe you should call your midwife and I was like yeah I probably should so I think mm. I called her at like 12 o'clock and I was like look I have been contracting all morning I'm fine I don't really need anything like it's very manageable I'm still you know just walking around doing, you know, having a shower, relaxing. It's all good. And she was like, okay, well, I just want to let you know that I've been here all day and I'm out of hours by 3.30. And I was like, oh, okay. And she said, I think she said that her partner was also out of hours. So I would just be rocking up to hospital with who knows who. And I was like, oh, no, that's exactly what I didn't want to happen. Um, so I was like, okay, um, you know, I'll go for a walk around the block and see if things get moving. <laughs> My partner and I went for a walk around the block and it definitely did pick up, but I was still managing fine. Like I thought I was a day away or something. And my midwife brain was like, all right, let's go to the toilet frequently. Let's have some snacks. So I went to the toilet and then my waters broke. And I was like, yes. <laughs> so I called her and I was like, look, my waters are broken. It was like half an hour after I'd spoken to her or something. And I was like, I'm just going to come in because I just have this feeling that 
that things are gonna things are gonna happen like I'm coping fine I could stay at home but now that I know my waters have broken I just want to be there just in case because as a midwife you know how quickly you can go from your waters breaking to having a baby as a multi um yeah I stay home for a bit longer and I was like I'm just gonna come in (laughs) and so I went downstairs and my husband and my mom were like having lunch and I was like all right my waters have broken let's get moving and then they were like can we finish our lunch and I'm like yeah right (laughs) so they just sat there eating their lunch and as I was sort of you know fluffing about getting you know my things in order whatever even though it was already ready um and on the drive to the hospital luckily it was only like 10 minutes and once I got there I definitely felt like I'd reached my it was like the opposite of the first time but I felt like I'd reached my safe place like I'm gonna have my baby here it just Mm. all my body was ready to go I remember going up the lift and like I was like had my head on the elevator and I was like oh my god this is happening um and I got to my room and my midwife is still there she still had a couple of hours to go and I just burst into tears when I got into the room because it was all so familiar and I was like oh my god this is gonna happen again and what am I doing I'm gonna have another baby like I've already got one baby and how am I gonna look after two? and like I just had this meltdown um and um she was like do you want me to do an examination and see where you go see where you're at and I was like yeah okay she's like do you want me to tell you I was like yeah just tell me like I felt like I wasn't in established labor anyway so whatever she told me probably wouldn't surprise me she's like okay you're seven centimeters and fully a face and I was like oh okay but that's what I was last time like is it all gonna happen again she was like no I really think you should get in the bath and I was like but I'm is it too early like I don't even feel like I'm in labor and she's like no I think you should get in so I got in the bath and I think I had these like my I just felt my whole body relax and I had these like three or four like whopping contractions where I was like oh my god it's happening again this is just too intense like get me out of this bath get me the epidural then I'm like oh my god it was so hard to get into the bath I can't get out I'm stuck in here now (laughs) um and after those four really big contractions then I started to have pressure again and I said um you know is it happening again like I'm only seven centimeters and I've got pressure like it's, it's happening again. I'm going to try not to push. And she was like, no, I think you should just go with your body. And I was like, no, I'm not going to try and push. But, of course, I couldn't help it. <clears throat> and then I started saying the whole, I need to go. I'm not doing this. And I remember I, like, mm. put my head in the water and I was like, just get me out of here. I'm not doing this. This is not happening. And then I was having, like, this internal conversation with myself and I was like, no, I think you're in transition. Even though my mouth was like, get me out of here. My brain was like, you're in transition just, like, you're fine, keep going. And um, then, of course, I couldn't stop pushing and I could actually feel her head coming down, which I couldn't feel the first time at all. Mm. So I knew that it was going to happen this time. But then the fear of like, oh, my God, what if I have a horrible tear because I did have quite a bit of scar tissue there from, you know, the episiotomy and the wound breakdown. So I'm like, oh, my God, I can't even push properly because, like, I'm too scared to push and, you know, Mm. get a horrible tear and blah, blah, blah. But my midwife was like, you can do it. She was absolutely amazing. Yeah. And I just slowly, I think because I actually could feel what was happening, I had complete control over feeling, you know, her head come and I I just let her head come out. I didn't push or anything, which was an amazing feeling. Um, and she was born and she was fine. And I was just so shocked that 
you know, two hours ago. I was like, I think I'm in labor, but, you know, whatever. And then, you know, it's classic second baby, you know, speed. Um, And, you know, once she was born, I was like, okay, now the next part happens. Like, am I going to have a tear? Am I going to have a bleed? But I had declined to have um, a cannula and I had decided to do a physiological third stage. Um, and I could tell that my midwife was a little bit nervous about it just because of my first birth and the PPH, but it was because of my episiotomy the first time. So I just had this like trust in myself that it would all be fine. And luckily it was. So she asked me again, you know, are you sure you don't want to have an active third stage? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. Let's just see what happens. I'll give myself half an hour. If there's nothing, then, you know, we'll go down that road. But, um, placenta came out. There was no bleeding. She checked me. I had like a tiny little graze and that was it. And I was just shocked. Like I got to have that beautiful hour or more of skin to skin with Maggie and feed her. And then I remember I took a shower and I came back and sat on the bed. Like I sat on my bum and I was like, oh, my God, it took me like four months to be able to sit down properly after having my first. And I'm like sitting down normally after just having a baby. It was a Mm. complete a complete change like it was amazing I would do it every day (laughs) it was so it was yeah it was amazing sounds so magical and you know how how great that you got to have that experience so such a contrast from the other time and you know that's why it's it is possible to have different birthing experience every time and you know in the back of your mind you still had some of that trauma and you definitely carried that into this you know, your second birth, but yeah. you allowed yourself to block it out when you needed to. And you went on to have an absolutely textbook perfect midwife birth, hey? <laughs> yeah. You deserved it. You deserved yeah. it. It was, yeah, it made me, it's, you know, as much as the trauma is definitely still with me from, you know, my first birth, that's, mm. you know, having Maggie was just like, I remember I kept saying to my partner for like weeks after I was like, I can't believe that that's what happened. Like I was so shocked. Um, It definitely came with an element of disappointment though that my first experience of motherhood was sort of started in such a, you know, Mm. traumatic way. Um, It may, you know, it makes you feel like you, you know, you missed out on something or whatever. But in the end, you know, I did get to have a lovely birth with Maggie and it did fix a lot of things, I think, for me. And I guess it just made me um, believe in my body again, that yeah. it could it could do, you know, what it could do, if that makes sense. Mm. A lot of lessons learnt, though, along the way for you, like as a mum and as a midwife too. Definitely. Wow, what an incredible journey, hey? So many highs, so many lows, but that ended so magically. And I guess we always finish off the episodes with months past five. So looking back, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself now that you're a mum? I think it would come down to not to have so much self-doubt and it's so hard to say because I still do now <laughs> with everything. But, you know, I always doubted and questioned if the way that I wanted to, you know, have babies young was normal. And there were a few comments from, you know, my colleagues at work where they were like, 
oh was your baby were you planning on having a baby or were you trying and I was like Mm. I was used to think would you ask someone that was maybe a bit older I don't know maybe married would you ever ask someone if they were planning a baby um so I had a lot of self-doubt around that you know is this what I should be doing but I would say to myself now that look at the life you have now that's what you wanted to do you know don't listen to what other people think or you know live by other people's expectations because who knows what would have happened if I had listened to that and waited until I was older or whatever who knows what how things would have gone I wouldn't have the beautiful babies that I do now and you know be in such a happy place I guess a hundred percent um number two something you wish you weren't so hard on yourself for um probably you know with you learn so much with your first baby (laughs) I was so hard on myself with things in like in regards to his sleep um he's definitely a different baby to my second but I was like borderline obsessive with trying to get him to sleep for probably the first six months Mm -hmm. or so and I guess that probably had a lot to do with like the lack of control that myself and my partner felt we had over our entire life like for the first six months I followed like every sleep training Instagram I bought two programs or something and when they didn't work I was like it's got to be me I'm doing it wrong Mm. what did I do wrong today that you know yesterday when he slept better what did I do wrong today and I would analyze what I'd done that day and how I could do it better tomorrow and then tomorrow if it didn't work I'm like what did I do today you know um in reality I think it was just him and as soon as I let go of like the rules it all sort of fell into place and I you know I then look back and think he eventually did start sleeping through and now he sleeps like a log I could have spent all the time I used, you know, rocking and patting him in a dark room to, you know, go and do things. And, you know, it is what it is now, but it's also harder with two kids to now get out of the house. I'm like, I could have been doing so much more stuff with my first, you know? Yeah. Well, you're not alone. So many mums do this and they automatically blame themselves when, you know, what they're reading doesn't work. Yeah. Um, Number three, one thing one thing you wish you knew more about. Definitely something I've been reflecting on lately would be running a small business and having children and doing everything else. Someone please teach me how to do all of that. I feel like you have to learn along the way. But yeah, if anyone listening, send us some tips. Um and number four, one thing you wish someone told you before becoming a parent. Um I think advice everything. around, yeah, everything, <laughs> but definitely that, and it's, I think it's been really focused on more recently about, you know, postpartum planning and, you know, mm-hmm. talking about having discussions about your relationship once the baby does arrive, because, you know, those first few months are intense with hormones and emotions and a lack of sleep. And I think, because I was a midwife, I did know that it would be tough, but like not as tough as it was. And I definitely didn't have enough supports put in place, especially given, you know, the whole readmission to hospital thing. I didn't have enough supports in place prior to it all going down. And of course, you've got your family there that are like, what do you need? Blah, blah, blah. But 
sometimes you don't even know what you need because you've got so many other things on your mind. But like I said, I do feel like there is a lot more attention on, you know, postpartum care and planning and, you know, meal services and that kind of thing now than there was even, what, three years ago when I had my Mm. son. There's a lot more attention on it now, which is great. Yeah, for sure. Such a massive aspect that often we don't think too much about. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, your favourite motherhood hack. <laughs> um, look, I feel like everyone says a similar thing, but definitely getting the things that are important done and out of the way in the morning because it's, you know, you've woken up, you've got a bit of energy, get dinner ready in the morning, get the kids out in the morning because by the time it hits like three o'clock, my brain is just like starting to slowly Don't. switch off. <laughs> Mine too. No, I don't even have anyone to worry about but me. Ah, <laughs> oh, too good. Wow, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. Um, like I said, what a journey. Uh, you've definitely had many highs, but you also had some lows and you've been through a lot. But I'm so glad that your second birth was empowering and you advocated for yourself and it was healing. And yeah, you're doing such an amazing job with everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. I love chatting. (laughs) Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Midi. Your support means the absolute world to me. So if you loved this episode and want to stay up to date with the latest interviews and midwifery education, please hit the subscribe button and leave a five-star review. For further information about this episode, please check the show notes below. If you wish to share your pregnancy and motherhood experience, you can get in touch with me by emailing hello at themidisociety.com.au and find us on Instagram at at themidisociety or at Monique underscore Maitland. I cannot wait for you to join me next week. I'll be talking all things flap chat. In the meantime, I hope you have an amazing week and remember you're doing the best you can. Mm-hmm.